Welcome to Christ Central on this Sunday worship service together. We're going through uh, finding and following Jesus with all kinds of feelings. Glad that you could join me. I'm Harold, one of the pastors. Today we're going to look at perhaps the most miserable sin of all. You came on a good Sunday. It's envy, how it ends. So if you have your Bibles, it'll also be projected overhead. We're going to look at Psalm 73. Okay, Psalm 73, verses 1 through 5, 16 and 17, and verses 23 to 26. By the way, uh, last Sunday I botched it really good. I'm so used to calling these psalms by David, by David. Last week, Psalm 42 was by the sons of Korah. My mistake as your pastor. Today, this is a psalm of Asaph. Okay, let's give our full attention to this. I'll read it for us. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. He continues forth, describing his envy over the prosperity and success and health of the wicked. We're going to jump to verses 16 and 17. Verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. And I'm going to close in verses 23 to 26. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is God's word so far. Envy, envy. Asaph openly admits to it. He expresses it. He brings his envy before God. And I think perhaps this is the most miserable sin of all. It brings manifold miseries. Here is how Asaph describes it. He observes the prosperity of the wicked, carefree, proud, seemingly impervious in the verses we read. It seems like they never get into trouble or they're protected from or they can buy their way out of trouble. In the verses we did not read, he goes on to say that the reckless are, the, the wicked are so reckless, they're malicious, they're violent. They're even blasphemous toward his God, and they just continue to succeed. Asaph says in verse 21, and in the verses we read, he is struck down by this. He's bitter with envy almost every day, but yet he is able to see it, and he admits it. Now, you know, envy is very, very hard and humbling to admit, because by definition, envy is saying I actually wish I was somebody else. I wish I could live someone else's life. At least some aspects of it. And I don't know the last time in your small group or at our church, you confessed or you hear anyone confess, I'm really, really struggling with envy. And then they actually have the bravery to call out the person's name that they're envious of. That is a very downsizing, maybe humiliating thing. 
And maybe there are a few people who can talk about this or confess it to their best of friends or maybe to their spouse. But notice the kind of relationship that Asaph has with God. That Asaph can admit it. He can talk about it. And God is a type of counselor and friend and sovereign king and omnipotent, omniscient ruler to whom you can completely unfilter, let go, tell him, please keep this a secret. I don't want anyone else to know. I know I'm going to be overreacting and maybe overemotional when I share all this. And yet this is exactly what Asaph can do with God. He brings his envy, which perhaps might be the most miserable sin of all. And it's way more dangerous than we think. Here's what we're going to do through the psalm. I first just want to talk about the miseries or the miserable company of envy. And I was quite, quite blown away this week studying this, how many new insights or revelations God was giving to my own heart, to my own life, and how much this resonates with me as well. The miserable company of envy. First, envy brings resentment. Okay, envy brings resentment. We know that again, Envy is, I wish I were someone else. I wish I could live the celebrity's life, that athlete's life, that artist's life, that mom's life, that billionaire's life. That person who just almost effortlessly succeeds and just gets through or is a great, great seat of esteem and power and privilege. What envy does, though, isn't that you just want to be somebody else. Envy doesn't just stop with you want what other people have that you don't have. Envy, this becomes all obsessive. And in envy, you resent other people for having what you don't have. You see, envy never stops with just wanting what other people have. Envy never stops with wanting to be someone else. Envy is you begrudge other people for their lives. Is it not? Envy develops a deep, deep resentment for the kinds of lives that other people have. You know, there's this old film that came to mind this week. It was 1999. I have to say that's old. It's a talented Mr. Ripley. A young Matt Damon plays a character by the name of Tom Ripley, who is clearly head over heels, obsessing and envious of a character by the name uh, played by Jude Law. Jude Law is a wealthy, privileged, charming, suave, wealthy womanizer in Italy who's cheating on a girlfriend who's played by Gwyneth Paltrow. And Tom Ripley, I won't spoil the whole movie, but he is obsessively, neurotically envious of Jude Law. And at one point, he says this, I always thought it would be better to be a fake somebody than a real nobody. I always thought it'd be way better to be a fake somebody than a real nobody. That's what envy sounds like. It's filled with resentment, resentment. A second miserable friend that envy brings. Dissatisfaction and discontentment. Not only are you resentful for the lives that other people get to live. Second, you're dissatisfied. You have discontentment. Nothing is ever good enough. Nothing's ever good enough. Nothing. Your life is not good enough. Your marriage is not good enough. Your job is not good enough. Your car is not good enough. Your house is not good enough. 
Your barbecue grill's not good enough. Your kids, your cat, your cat, your cat is not good enough. Your friends aren't good enough. Your front yard isn't good enough. Your traffic isn't good enough. Your body isn't good enough. Nothing is ever good enough. You can never sit down and totally enjoy and rejoice and thank God for what you do have. Envy at the root will bring resentment and constant dissatisfaction and discontentment. Of course, this will ruin every Thanksgiving, not only in your own heart, but people around you as well. Why does this happen? Because again, envy by nature is in a constant game of comparisons. Envy by nature wouldn't exist if you just stopped comparing. And one of the great conduits of this, of course, is social media. Of course, it's social media. I think there's a lot of good value. I pray for my daughters all the time or teenagers, but I don't know how they're going to grow up in this environment. I'm middle-aged, and I still struggle with it. But social media, do you see it? Do you see it? Do you, ever, do you ever counter it? Do you ever filter it? Do you ever shut it down? Do you ever shut it off? Do you ever kind of go back at what social media is doing? In a lot of ways. In a lot of ways. I mean, social media, I'm guilty of it too. Social media, we just post, look what I ate. Look what I wore. Look where I went to. Look what I won. Look where I vacation at. Look at my marriage, how happy it is. At least tonight. Look at me. Look at this. And we post a lot of things. And I hear so many reports from my youth pastor friends. How depressing and depleting it is for teenagers. Because when you're obsessed with social media, you are automatically addicted to comparisons. And the constant game of comparisons at root breeds discontentment and dissatisfaction. You see, what Asaph saw and suffered in his day, I looked, I observed the prosperity and the success of the wicked. I was envious of them. Whatever he suffered from in his day, just put that on full steroids today with social media. Let me give us just one more example. I think a lot of us in this room are deeply, deeply discontented with just how you look. I'm not just talking to my brother. I'm talking to my brothers and sisters. I'm talking to everybody. Especially in a place like L.A. Especially in a place like L.A. A lot of our deepest profound sadness might be just how you look. You wish you were taller. You wish your hair was a different color. You wish your nose looked different. You wish you were of, of, of a different figure or, or size. Or you wish your skin was lighter or darker. You wish you looked more like this. You wish people would notice you more. You wish you were more attractive. You wish you were just a little more this or that. Can I tell you, my dear friend, you know what's happened to you? Envy might have ruined your body self-image. Envy might have poisoned you. And envy has put in a huge layer of dissatisfaction, discontentment that you seemingly cannot shake. Can I ask you to look underneath? Can I ask you to look underneath? In a constant game of comparisons, in a place like Hollywood and West LA and Orange County and the beach, is this really what God has to say and think and feel about you? Or is it something that we do to ourselves in the constant game? 
Envy brings resentment. Envy brings dissatisfaction and discontentment. Third, third, the miserable company of envy. It brings a critical spirit. A very critical spirit. And it's always on. It's always on. A constant critic. You have to find holes. You have to find gaps. You have to find mistakes. You got to point out lackings. You're a fault finder. You're a fault finder. To a certain degree, that is great. But you know, in the Bible, it is praiseworthy that you can sincerely praise and admire or compliment someone else. It is absolutely praiseworthy that you can recognize someone who is beautiful or more advanced or more successful or intelligent or performs better or just does that better. And you can praise and admire someone even better than you and glorify and praise God for that kind of common grace or grace upon that person. It's an act of self-surrender. It's an act of serving the other person. That's praise and adoration. Envy will never do that. Envy has to bring someone who is better than you. You got to bring them down. You got to bring them down. You got to find some kind of fault. You just got to find something wrong with them. You know, someone says, oh, so-and-so, isn't he or she so good at that? But you're the one at least whispering. I have to bring in that one last little remark. But you, you do know. Envy does this. Envy brings a constant critical spirit. One in praiseworthy, in praising others, is self-surrendering. It's actually the way of Jesus. And the other is self-obsessing and self-preserving. You know, envy can make you so miserable that the only way you try to feel better is by making other people miserable too. Envy is such miserable company that because it makes you so miserable, you're going to have to bring other people down to feel miserable as you. This is why it's miserable company. It brings resentment. It brings dissatisfaction, discontentment. Third, it brings a critical spirit. Here's fourth. Here's fourth. Envy turns into hate. Envy does turn into hate. And, you know, I'll tell you as your pastor, reading the scriptures and just in practical life experience, if left alone, it always does. Don't think this is like an optional route that envy might become, potential. No, no. Envy left alone will always turn into this. It'll turn into hate. Here's how I know that. The longest story about anyone in the book of Genesis is about Joseph. <coughs> and Joseph had a dad by the name of Jacob. And Jacob was a neurotic, unstable, unhealthy, dysfunctional dad. The reason why Joseph's dad, Jacob, was not a good dad, because he had a bad dad. Jacob's father clearly favored his older brother. He disfavored Jacob. And so when Jacob had a son through the love of his life, Rachel, he had Joseph. He clearly favored Joseph well above all the other 11 brothers. Jacob, as a dysfunctional, unwise dad, favored Joseph so much so, he gave him a special coat. It was an item of clothing, which I believe to be over the top. You could not not notice it. And it sounds like Joseph wore that coat every day. He paraded it. By the way, just a word to parents out there like myself. Love your kids differently. Sometimes you're surprised if you have more than one child that they came from your loins because they could not be more different. Love them differently, but you have to love them equally. 
But back to Jacob, who did not love them equally at all. Joseph stood out. He gave him a special coat, which he paraded around every day. Then the story goes on and says, Joseph used to be the good kid who was a tattletale, and he would bring bad reports of his brother back to his dad. God himself even gave Joseph dreams. Two dreams. These are true, infallible, inspired dreams. But when you're a young, bratty, ambitious kid like Joseph, he bragged about those dreams in front of his brothers and his parents. Now, here's what the Hebrew author is careful to know. Read the story from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50. If you want to understand human history, the reality of our family dynamics, the reality of why people don't get along, here it is, here it is. The Hebrew author begins by saying, and the brothers envied him. The Hebrew author then repeats it, and the brothers envied him. Then all of a sudden, it turns from Joseph's brothers envied him, and then it turns from, and then they hated him. They hated him, and they hated him all the more. Till one day, the Bible tells us that the brothers plotted to murder Joseph. They envied him, they envied him. Then they hated him and hated him, and they hated him all the more until the point that they tried to kill him, get rid of him. You see, what that tells me is, do you remember Cain and Abel? Do you remember the first murder, the first homicide in all of human history according to God? Well, why did that occur? This is Cain and Abel part two, because the brother envied his brother. And I think what envy is then it's like, the, it's like the gateway drug. It's the gateway drug to maybe even more vicious and violent sins and crimes ahead. Envy turns into murderous hate. My friend, did you know envy could be this pervasive? Did, did you know that under resentment and I'm discontent and dissatisfied and why am I always fault-finding and critical and then why do I just hate on people? Did you know under each of those buckets, in the root, it might be envy? Listen, don't take it from me. You really shouldn't. You should never take it just from a pastor because he thinks so. Let's take it from a God-inspired author by the name of James. James. If you have your Bibles, James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Here's how he diagnoses why we fight. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So the Holy Spirit-inspired author tells us this. At the root of fights and quarrels, even in the church, that turn into murderous hate. Listen, my friends. It's because of covetousness at the root. Covetousness at the root. Think of the person you don't like right now. Don't look at him if he's sitting right next to you. Don't look at your spouse, please. I don't want to have marital counseling fights right now. Think, just think of, don't say the name out loud. 
Think of the kind of person you despise. Think of the kind of person you usually criticize. Think of the kind of person you malign. Think of the kind of person you subtly, but oh so not subtle at times, rally and influence other people against. Think of the kind of people you hate on, you hate on, you hate on. Can I ask you a question? Could it be envy? Oh, Pastor Hell, did you, did you see so-and-so's Instagram post the other day? I'm like, no. This guy is so pretentious. He was bragging about how many employees has a company and how much money he's making a year. I just can't stand it. I can't stand it. I just laugh. I say, yeah, it's pretentious. It's not wise. Pretty dumb of him. Listen, my friend, though. Behind the excuse of how pretentious you think that person can be, maybe you envy the money. If you... If someone making so much more money than you or is so much more successful than you really unnerves you and keeps getting under your skin, it might be that money is mastering you. You see, if you avoid and malign and hate on people who just, when they show up in a room, instant attraction or attention, they're just gorgeous. They're just charming. They're just great looking. They just have this personality. And as soon as that person walks in the room like you just go to another corner and you just can't stand this person. It might be appearances is everything to you. If someone gets recognized or awarded or applauded, you get it? Do you get it? A lot of it might be at the root envy. Envy, quite simply, is the worst company because it's anti-biblical. You are unhappy when other people are happy. Envy weeps while people rejoice. And if you do not believe you're an envious type, if you don't believe you have any envy in you, please keep in mind, envy also works in reverse. Meaning, when people above you, your bosses, senior managers, or presidents, or CEOs, or whoever, when they fail or fall, or they stumble, you secretly rejoice. You throw secret parties. You relish it. You rejoice in someone else's downfall because envy is really hate. Oh, do you, do you see the manifold miseries that envy can bring? Resentment, dissatisfaction, constant critical spirit, and it can turn into even murderous hate. Here's the fifth, last one. I just have to stop for the sake of time. Self-pity, self-pity. Some of us are just filled with it and overflowing with it. You're unhappy with the way your life is going about how you grew up with your family and that situation and setting. Your self-pity about the advantages that you did not have, the opportunities that you missed. You feel sorry for yourself, bitter and venting about everything. I've never read this author by the name of Joseph Epstein, but I do read a lot of Pastor Tim Keller, and he quotes Joseph Epstein. So I'll just quote Joseph Epstein from Tim Keller, who wrote this thing about the seven deadly sins. Here's what Joseph Epstein wrote. Giving into sloth and laziness is rather pleasant. 
Giving into the loss of temper, losing one's temper, entails a release that is not without its small delights. Lust, greed, and pride bring quite a bit of pleasure for quite a long time. Only envy is absolutely no fun at all, draining all joy from you from its very first moment. We have all felt envy's desperate, deep, soul-destroying, lacerating stabs. So what do we do with this? How how do we get a handle on this? Two applications. Two applications. Here's the first. Here's the first. Painful and difficult. But you have to do the first. Trace your envy. Trace your envy. My friend, you cannot heal anything that's not broken or wounded or sick. You cannot seek a savior if you see no problems. Uh, You will never repent of or pray against and replace something that you just cannot identify. So you got to trace your envy first. Do you see it? Do Do you see it? Do you see how it works in you? Any of those five marks true of you? Do you see how it works in you? And then you got to follow it. You got to follow it all the way. Trace your envy to its root. I won't say the movie name, but it's put out by A24 Studios. They're putting out incredible art, incredible music. I mean, incredible movies. And there's a scene that haunted me. I can't forget it, but... Tracing your envy is like following the breadcrumbs to the witch's house. Following your envy is getting to the footsteps of where the witch has taken residence in your soul. You see, again, that which you envy most of someone else that which unnerves you, troubles you, makes you so dissatisfied and critical and hating on this person, do you not see that that might be your master? If people making so much more money, money might be your ma- might mastering you. If people, how they appear gets under your skin, it might be about appearances. You get it, right? You get the point. But you got to trace it. You got to trace it. Someone more successful, someone bigger, better, more, just more almost effortlessly effective, like Salieri in the movie Amadeus, who appreciated and loved music so much, he could recognize the gift of God in a young Amadeus, Wolfgang Mozart. But here's why it's so important to trace envy and deal with it. Jonathan Edwards, in a famous sermon on envy, he observed this. Never underestimate the spiritual power of envy. Look at Adam and Eve. They had paradise. They got paradise. They had everything. Perfection. Eternity. God. No disease. No hunger. No pain. No sin. No shame. But wait, there was just one thing they couldn't have. Just that one more little thing. You can't eat from that one tree. They had everything but just one thing, and it wasn't good enough. And it was envy that turned the Garden of Eden into our foul, fallen, poisoned world. Never overlook or underestimate the power of envy. You think about Saul. 
one of the most moral, conservative, obedient, zealous, energetic, religious people you would ever find. Saul. He didn't know he was being a terrorist against Jesus, though. He was a terrorist against the people, the Christians, of, the, Christian, the, the, the followers of Jesus as the way. What? What, if at all, got to Paul's heart, convicted him, and converted him to become a Christian? What aspect about God or his commandments struck him down so that he would need to be resurrected? Paul tells us in one of these most difficult but explosive passages in all of Scripture, Romans chapter 7. I'm just going to read four verses from here. Here's how Paul describes his spiritual autobiography. Listen. Here's what, this is what happened in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 7. What then shall we say that, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Paul said, starting off, I wouldn't know that coveting is wrong until God told me it's wrong. There is no sin without the law. And the law seizing an opportunity showed me this is dead, dead wrong. Then he goes on and says this, verses 10 and 11. <coughs> Excuse me. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Killed me. So here's how Saul became Apostle Paul. My friend, today, this is how you might actually become a Christian believer. This is how it works. Until you see what God sees underneath the hood, you're never going to need Jesus to save you. And Apostle Paul basically thought the first nine commandments of the holy moral law, he's doing pretty good. You know, the first nine commandments, outwardly, externally, behavior conformity, you can pretty much keep it. You can present it. And pretty much to a certain degree, pretend to do it. But it was the 10th commandment that killed him. Oh, it was just that last added on commandment, the thing, that one. Do not covet. That, that did Paul over. Because he knew that was internal. He knew that had to do with your desires. He knew that had to do with your affections. He knew that had to do with your imaginations. And here's what Saul realized. I don't control that. That's what Saul realized. What do I do with that? And until he saw that he was out of control with this covetousness, the law of God seized his heart, killed him, and it only killed him so that he would see he could only rise again with Jesus, who rose again from death for his sin. Trace your envy. Trace your envy. Do you? Because as soon as you do, and you get to the trail that it leads you to, at that place, my friend, as you trace it, you can do the second. Here's the second application. Take your envy into the sanctuary of God. See, where do you take your envy? Don't just trace it and follow it. Oh, identify where it's coming from. Take your envy into the sanctuary of God so it doesn't destroy you, but God can destroy it. Where do you take your envy to put it to an end? Asaph tells us in verse 17. He says, I try to understand these things. It was wearisome to me. Meaning, I couldn't outthink it. I could not get a handle on it. Until, verse 17, 
I entered into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. Asaph took his envy into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. What does he mean by this? Let's work backwards. Let's work backwards. He says, then I discerned their end. Then I discerned their end. It sounds to me, Asaph gained perspective. It sounds to me that in the sanctuary of God, he was able to think it through all the way to the end. You know, during this whole sermon series, one of the common themes, if you've not fallen asleep through all of them, because you're going to hear repeatedly from Pastor Jamie and Daniel Dinko and myself and everyone who's taught on this. What is one of the repeated themes of how we deal with raging, out of control, negative feelings like depression, guilt, anger, anxiety? What is one of the remedies that the Bible has told us to do? Did the Bible ever say, when you feel like this, just think less? When you are raging and depressed like this, just don't think Shut your eyes. Take that giant leap of faith. Never. Jesus never remedies it. Here's what Jesus always says. You have to think more. You got to think more. You got to think biblical truth. Why are you so materialistic? Why are you so comfort seeking? Here's the solution. You're not thinking right. You're not thinking it all the way to the end. Why are you so vengeful and bitter? Why do you have so much self-pity? You're not thinking straight. You got to think it all the way to the end. Because here's what Asaph started to think all the way through the end in the sanctuary of God. He starts to go on in verses we did not read. He says, oh, but, but, oh, I know how this all ends though. All the arrogant, all the blasphemous, all the trouble-free, carefree, fat and sleek, prosperous and wealthy, who defy God, I know how they fare in the end. I know how they fare in the end. They will perish with nothing. They'll have an eternity to pay because there's only one God and before him we must give an account. Where do you take envy to put it to an end? Into the sanctuary of God. In the sanctuary of God, he thought it through. He thought it through. Think it through. Think it through. Not less. He gained perspective. In 1992, after my dad dropped dead from an aneurysm, just dropped dead. My college pastor from Berkeley had the audacity to write me a letter. And he was trying to comfort me. And he wrote in the letter these three sentences, which will never leave me. Because it gave me perspective. Life is short. Death is certain. Eternity is long. Life is short. Death is certain. Eternity is real long. That's perspective. That's perspective. And that's where envy goes to die. It's not only you look at the past or the present, but you look into the future. The future. But this isn't the only thing that Asaph got. He didn't just get more thinking and more perspective. He said, when I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Okay, he discerned. He got more perspective. But he said he went to the sanctuary of God. What is that? He's talking about a worship experience. He's talking about something sensory. He's talking about something spiritual. He's talking about something real. He's talking about something palpable. He's, talk, he's talking about something that makes an uh, eternity-changing kind of dent in someone's life. 
in the sanctuary of God. You know, that's why it is so important that our slides and our artistry and our music and all that we do in the worship of God ought to be done well, beautifully. Aesthetics do matter. Aesthetics aren't the most important thing, but they do matter. Why? Because they can actually take the same gospel lyrics, the same gospel truths, and the Holy Spirit can use that to apply it and have you experience it upon the heart. Just like standing here almost every Sunday, there's a certain song we just sang in Christ alone. And certain lyrics right there, as I sing that, something is happening where the Holy Spirit, and he just loves to do it. It's not like he's reluctant. He's not like just waiting around and say, I don't want to give that to your Herald. No, you just come in a humble posture and say, God, I need, I need your grace. I need a fresh application. I need renewal. I need my soul to be detoxed from envying the world so that I could really desire and love you. And just these little brief moments on a Sunday with my family at Christ Central. By the way, I don't know how you get through life without regularly at least having sanctuary worship experiences every Sunday together. But here's what Asaph did. He went into the sanctuary of God and he had a experience of the presence of God. My friend, you need a lot more than just perspective. You need a lot more than a good philosophy. You need the palpable presence of God. And in his presence, he was healed. He understood that God provides, leads, loves, looks after, counsels, and upholds him all the way into forever. And he's enthralled by it. We need perspective and we need to be healed by his presence. And one of the most majestic, beautiful things about God, another, just another, we run out of time to talk about all the features of God that is praiseworthy. That's why we got eternity to do it. But I think one of the most attractive things about God on this topic is that God is the most unenvious person in the world. God envies no one. God doesn't want to look a little more like this. God doesn't feel like he should do that a little bit better. God doesn't think, oh, just one more thing. Just a little more. Just a little more to my business. Just a little more to my ministry. Just a little more to my resume. Just a little more to my driveway. Just a little more to my backyard. Just a little more to my future. No, God never, never, never feels this way. And in his presence, in his palpable presence, Envy comes to its end. John Piper wrote a book entitled The Pleasures of God. I think it's a little overlooked. In my little opinion, I think it's the best book he ever wrote. Because in The Pleasures of God, you start to enter in to the infinite, never-ending, never-changing, never-undiluted pleasures that God has been just enjoying from eternity past into eternity future. And there, envy has no root, no soil, no place. Because in God, you get everything. Did you know that, my friend? Did you know that you get literally everything? Past, present, and future. 
And here's how we can be sure of that. The only person who should have been the most envious and bitter in the history of humanity was Jesus Christ. Because only he was pure in heart. It says, surely, God, you are good to those who are pure in heart. Jesus was perfect and absolutely pure in heart. But God was so not good to him. Why? Jesus was the fulfillment of Psalm 73. But God was so not good to him. He did not prosper. He perished. He did not succeed. The world thought he failed. He was not blessed. He was cursed. He was not exalted. He was humiliated. He did not come out on top and win. He was defeated. He did not ascend. He descended into the grave. Why? Because here's what Jesus came to do for you and me. He came to take the things that make you so resentful, that make you so dissatisfied, that make you critical. He even took all all that murderous hate and he took all your self-pity and he got crucified in your place. He took all the things that our sin of envy brings. He took its miserable companies upon himself and he got crucified and he died in our place. Do you know why Jesus did that for you? Because Jesus came down for the most bitter to get better by getting him. Jesus came all the way down for the most bitter in their envy. So you can get better by Jesus giving up himself for you. That's where you can take your envy. Don't just trace it. And when you come into the sanctuary of God, God loves to give you a perspective But he showed you he loves to give you himself because he came all the way down in Jesus already. Oh, so Asaph closes, does he not? With some of the most beautiful, recited, sung lyrics in all of the Psalter, verses 23 to 26. Here's how he concludes. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My friends, envy comes to an end in the palpable, sweet presence of God. And all of this language that the psalmist closes with, it's not theoretical, it's all sensory. It's all experience. It's all about taste buds for the soul. It's about delight. It's about joys. It's about satisfaction. It's about everything opposite of what envy brings. And do you know how you and I get verses 23 to 26? Only because Jesus went through the bitterness and the pain of the beginning of Psalm 73, you and I get to conclude with Asaph in praise at the ending of Psalm 73. Because the pure in heart who died in our place, now you'll get what he deserves. I bless, may God bless you, not only with this word, but the exit plan from envy. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you, Lord, that you came down personally to take upon all the miseries that my sin brings. 
and you took it upon yourself so that in return you might set us free and give us all the delights and all the joys and the blessings that you deserve. Oh Lord, bring us into the sanctuary now. Not only point out our envy, not only have us trace it, but please, oh God, by your love and grace, have us bring it to you. And in your presence, oh Lord, my strength and my portion forever, before the God who never fails, my delight, whom have I in heaven but you? In your presence, oh Lord, heal us, we pray. Heal us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.